The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. church. How are we? Great. I'm so glad to see you. Um, If you're new around here, and uh, I know that a few of you are, I just want to say welcome. Uh, We're a pretty simple church. We're a family, uh, and, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Uh, We know we're all broken people on a journey with Jesus, and so if you are new, um, I I hope that you will feel that you belong here, and um, over time that you'll make yourself known and Maybe you feel like you can find a place of involvement and community and that kind of thing. Uh, if you are new, I just want to let you know today uh, we're having what we call open house, which is right after the gathering. It'll be out these doors and to the right uh, in one of the classrooms back there, just like lemonade and cookies. And uh, myself and a few of our other leaders just to introduce ourselves to you and let you know a little bit more about our church. And so if you're interested in that, come on by. Um, also, a couple of quick things before we get into today's stuff. Um, If you'll take a look behind you real quick, everybody, the walls are studded. Look at that. So praise God. Um, We, these are going to be our, we got a conference room, offices, 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 and then a kitchen, kitchenette. We're going to call it a kitchenette where we can make coffee. Uh, Praise God. So if you like coffee that much, you'd give more to the project. But anyway, um, just kidding, just kidding. Thank, uh, we are very thankful for uh, all those who've been generous towards this project. Uh, I think the next step is electrical and then drywall here. So that'll be kind of finished and then they'll build out the rest of it. But um, we are receiving donations for that phase two project through next Sunday, the 15th, which by the way, is our church's first official birthday. <laughs> Praise God. So I'll be um, coming out of this series. We're going to talk about uh, where we've been in the last year, where the Lord might be taking us. Um, and we got some treats for you as well uh, to celebrate our first birthday. So uh, I heard rumors of cupcakes. Um, so we'll, we'll have a good time with that. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say for the moment. So if you have a Bible, just go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 1. Um, we're in a series seeking to understand and be discerning about the cultural moment that we find ourselves in and our place in it as followers of Jesus. How we can best represent Jesus and his kingdom here and now in the climate that we find ourselves. And I hope you've seen how these weeks have built upon each other. I know not everyone's been here for every week, but um, just as a a matter of review, um, we started this series with an understanding of what culture is that God created us to be culture creators. You might remember that. Then we looked at three common approaches to culture, right? Do we kind of pull back from culture? Do we, are we fully absorbed by the culture? Or is there another way that Jesus teaches us about, which is engaging uh, faithfully in the culture? Uh, then we looked at the, I, the concept of identity. Who are we? Who gets to determine who we are? Does that come from within us? Or do we need an external uh, uh, divine source to give us identity? That was week three. Last week, Pastor Jimmy helped us look at being a people of wisdom in a world of folly. Now, let me be careful by saying folly does not mean stupidity. Folly, according to the Bible, is a life that is directed 
apart from God, that, it, that does not revere God, does not honor God, does not um, listen to or obey God. That's folly. So it's not stupidity, it's something very different. And that brings me to the PG-13 warning for today. Um, we're gonna be talking about sex and sexuality and gender and those kinds of things, okay? Did you feel the awkwardness just come into the room? If that makes you uncomfortable, try being the one teaching it. <laughs> so I wanna say, if you're not ready for, um, if, if you got young kids in the room and you're not ready for um, questions in the van on the way home, uh, maybe now's the time to get them to kids' ministry. Did I totally lose this, or can you guys hear me okay? It was a little echoey. I oh, see, now it's back to being echoey, but I thought it just totally dropped out, so apologize. Um, here's the reality. Jesus constantly made people feel awkward and uncomfortable, didn't he? Why? Because he loved them enough to tell them the truth. And I'm not Jesus, but I also love you enough to tell you the truth. And so we're going we're gonna to wade into some deep waters this morning. Um, you may not like what I have to say. That's okay. Um, I get flack every time I do stuff like this for either saying too much or not saying nearly enough, which means I must be hitting it right. <laughs> um, but, but here's what I'd ask. That as you listen, so... Clearly, you can't, um, you can't cover everything about gender and sexuality in one sermon. Uh, so we're going to do this again on the 22nd of the month. So next week, because it's our birthday, uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to jump back into this, and we're going to talk again about these mature issues because we need to. But I'm asking that as you hear what, what, what God's word has to say about the issue, that you would, number one, give me the benefit of the doubt, the same way I give you the benefit of the doubt when I look at your social media, okay? I'm just kidding. Um, kind of. <clears throat> give me the benefit of the doubt, okay? Um, search the scriptures for yourself, and let's have conversation. It's the only way any of us grow, right? Is by talking it out and digging into God's word, which is our ultimate source of truth. Now, is that enough preface for this morning? Um, clearly, we can't address everything, as I said, so we're going we're to hit this again on the 22nd. Now, some critics, I've seen multiple articles about this. Some critics would say that the Christian church is sex-obsessed. And I would argue that we are simply responding to a culture which is sex-obsessed. Which means we probably don't address these issues nearly enough. I mean, if you, if you are a thinking person and you look around, sex is everywhere. It's, it's everywhere on TV. It is in our books. Uh, it's on the web. It's on social media. It is um, I, even, I saw an article from The Atlantic, which is a, a non-Christian publication, um, that, that said, in a given year, out of the 174 songs that made the Billboard Top 10 in a given year, 92% of them were sex-related. So you're telling me the church is sex-obsessed? Au contraire, mon frère. Okay? We, we are simply, we didn't ask for this, it's coming at us, and so we need to address it. Does that make sense? Okay, I also recognize the title of today's sermon is A People of Purity in a World of Seduction. I chose those words very carefully, and I recognize that the word purity might be a trigger to some of you who grew up in 80s and 90s, quote-unquote, purity culture in the church. 
That's been a big issue in the last year or so, people responding to that, maybe even longer than a year. I get it, okay? The church, I think, was good-hearted and um, bad on execution, and a lot of people were hurt in the process, okay? Shamed and those kinds of things. Uh, But that word purity is used over 100 times in the Bible. It is a word full of meaning. And so my hope is to redeem that word this morning, okay? All right. With the time I have left, uh, let me pray, and then we'll dive into Genesis chapter one. Now, I don't have uh, large chunks of scripture to read. We're gonna kind of do what we've been doing the last few weeks, which is look at a survey of a few verses just to get some context, uh, and then we'll talk about some issues. So let's join me in prayer if you would. Father, I know that these are very delicate issues. These are sensitive topics. And yet you are not silent on them. And so neither should we be. But my prayer this morning is that you would allow me, Holy Spirit, to speak with clarity and conviction, with boldness and humility, and ultimately with love. And that the people who are in this room and who will hear this message later, whether on YouTube or podcast or whatever, that you, Holy Spirit, even right now, would soften and open their hearts to receive truth. If there's anything that I say or anything in my notes that is not of you, that is um, man's wisdom or folly, let it fall to the wayside, but, but would your word do the work that we know that it, 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 it's, you set out for it to do, that it would bear much fruit in our souls for your glory and for our good. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be honoring in your sight. My rock and my redeemer. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, look at Genesis chapter one with me. Um, We're gonna look at the first couple verses and then skip down a little bit. If you're a note taker, I I want you to see what I'm, the the picture I'm trying to paint here is the beauty of the beginning. The beauty of the beginning, okay? So Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, um, heavens and earth is the Hebrew idiom that kind of just means like from top to bottom, he made it all, all right? He made everything, okay? Now, skip down with me to verses 26 and following. Verse 26, so God made everything and then... God said, verse 26, let us make man, mankind, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, we'll stop there for a minute. So we see God creating everything. He creates men and women alike in his own image, which means they are equal man and woman in worth, value, and dignity. They are equal, but they are not identical. There is distinction between man and woman. We know this. Our bodies and even our brains are biologically different. 
Every cell in your body is coated with either male or female DNA, and they are different. They are distinct. They're both valuable, but they are distinct, which means that it means something to be a man and not a woman, and it means something to be a woman and not a man. So our sex or our maleness or our femaleness is essential to who we are as image bearers of our God. It is not accidental, it is not peripheral, it is not flexible, nor is it negotiable. And only together, God creates us in his image and then he calls us together so that when, when male and female come together in a covenant bond, they most accurately reflect the glory and the image of God. Man enough was not Man was not enough by himself to reflect the image of God. Woman by herself was not enough to reflect the image of God. And so God made them both in his image and then put them together so that they together would reflect the image of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Genesis 2 is like a double-click exploded view of creation. Okay? So if we double-click down, here's what we find in Genesis 2, 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, general principle, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so we, we double-click down, we explode this view, and what we see here is that God creates the woman from man. Remember, I told you a few weeks ago, up till the creation of mankind, God had spoken everything else into existence. Then he created man, but he formed man of the dust of the earth. He got dirt under his fingernails, so to speak, in making man, and then he, he actually takes something from man to make woman. So he's intimately involved in the creation of human beings. So he creates woman from man. Man then is, is received this gift of this woman, and he sings a song to her. Some of your Bibles have it like indented and spaced over. This she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, my buddy Leonce says this is the first, the world's first R&B song right here in the Bible. <laughs> and so we see the principle that mankind, therefore, shall leave father and mother, cleave to or stick to a wife in the covenant of marriage for their lives, and the two, he says, will become one flesh, which means I am yours completely, spiritually, emotionally, and yes, in the consummation of a marriage, even physically, the complementarity of the human biology brings them together as one person uh, in, the, in the act of intimacy. God's first command, if we go back to Genesis chapter one, God's first command to this couple, be fruitful and multiply. Like some people push back at the Bible and they go, it's full of like rules and commands. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not all bad, man. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, be intimate, reproduce. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and then caught them rolling around the garden and was like, what are you doing? He made them, he made sex for them. For both procreation and for pleasure. And if you don't believe me, try reading the Song of Songs out loud at dinner tonight. <laughs> you will either blush or you might have a kid at the end. So... <clears throat> 
God says yes to it. He blesses it. He calls it good. In fact, at the end of creating mankind, he says it's very good that man and woman are together. His sexuality then is a good gift meant to be expressed because of the power of it meant to be expressed only within the covenant of marriage, which has historically been defined by the Christian church for the last 1,960 some odd years as a covenant between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now, I know that that is hard for some of you to receive, but that has been the historic position of really humanity, but in particular, Christians and the church for almost 2,000 years. And I say almost 2,000 because I'm gonna get somewhere in a minute. So I want you to see the Bible starts not with negative commands, but with positive commands. God is for you. He's for male. He's for female. He's for the union of male and female in marriage. He's for sex. That's a beautiful thing that God has created. One author said we were sexual before we were sinful. And that's really important to remember. But of course, we see Genesis chapter three. Follow me there. You guys with me so far? Genesis chapter three. I'm gonna read seven verses just to give us context. I'm gonna have to fly through this sermon, y'all. Now, the serpent, verse one, was more crafty than any other beast of the field uh, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, We call this the great thud in the garden. And notice the serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve was to disbelieve the words of their father who had created them. Did God actually say? And and that, that temptation of the serpent is as loud in our ears today as it has ever been. So the temptation was to disbelieve the words of God. In other words, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so they twisted the truth of God. And and after the fall of man, what happened? Sin enters the world and with it comes self-focus and blame and shame. Now, I don't think it's gonna take me much to convince you that we still live in a world today that exchanges the truth of God for lies and worships the gifts of God over the giver of the gifts. And there are a multitude of lies that that are being sold in our culture today, but but two specific lies, and this is what I wanna address somewhat in the rest of the sermon. Two current lies of our culture pertaining to sexuality are these. Number one, that your sexual desires are central to your identity. We live in a world today that tells us that our sexual desires are central to our identity, to who we are. Okay, that's lie number one. Lie number two, that ultimate fulfillment and freedom and happiness is found in the unrestricted expression of those desires. 
that ultimate fulfillment and happiness and freedom is found in expressing those inmost desires, okay? Those are the two, there are more, but those are the two lies of our culture pertaining to sexuality that I want to talk about for the rest of our time together, okay? You guys with me so far? Okay, now, flip with me. We're gonna skip a lot of history, but go, back, go with me to Matthew chapter five. This is gonna be page 761 if you are in one of the black hardback pew Bibles. Five seventy five. Sorry, seven sixty one. Page seven sixty one. Matthew chapter five. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' most famous body of teaching, and we're just going to read a couple of verses here, and then I'll explain why I picked these verses. Uh, if you're a note taker, what I'm trying to point out here is the difficulty of desire. The difficulty of desire. Look at Matthew five verse twenty seven. You have heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery." It's one of the big 10, right? One of the 10 commandments. So everybody had heard that. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than let let your whole body be thrown into hell or Gehenna. It's this idea of, of, of the waste pile. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, strangely, this part of the Sermon on the Mount is not as popular as like <laughs> the Beatitudes, for example, but it's all one body of teaching. Um, Jesus makes this statement, and this is, this is important to realize. Jesus makes this statement about lust, in a world where both men and women wore long flowing tunics. There was no such thing as yoga pants at this time. And and I I mean, I don't mean to be crass in saying that. I think my point in that is this. Um, Lust then is not a matter of external clothing, no matter what your youth pastor in the 90s told you. Lust is not a matter of external clothing, but of internal motive of the heart. Now, you have to know that when we hear the word lust in American culture, we automatically think sex. But the original word here really isn't related to sex. It just means inordinate or disordered desire. Another way to translate this word is to covet or to set the heart upon You can lust for all kinds of things. You can lust for power. You can lust for affirmation, right? You you can lust for a promotion. You can lust for a brand new Chevy Colorado four by four, four door. Sorry, sorry. You can, did I mention it was my birthday last week? Okay. Uh, To make our, the central focus That's what this word lust means. It's an inordinate, disordered desire, covetousness, putting my heart, setting my heart upon a thing, making it the central focus. You have to know, not every desire is bad. But giving ourselves over to every desire is not good. James even tells us um, that we are lured into sin by our desire. So to have a desire is not bad. 
right? Desires largely are given to us by God. We have a desire to eat. We have a desire to provide. We have a desire to have food and clothing and, you know, shelter and all those kinds of things. That's a good desire. We have desires for sex. That's a good desire, okay? But it's what we do with the desire. And James says that, that, that desire entices us or pulls us into sin. So it's what we do with our desire that leads us towards sin. So, so let me make this point. Sexual attraction or sexual desire is part of being human. It's the way we're made. And it's a good thing. And I would also argue, this will be hard for some of you to hear, but I am increasingly convinced that just as you did not choose, for example, your heterosexual sexual desire, those of us in the room or, or elsewhere who may struggle with same-sex desires didn't choose that either. And as I've talked to people, many of them have prayed and asked God that it would go away. But it's a desire they have. Now, the desire in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. But what do we do with that desire? How do we express that desire? That's where the issue comes. Remember King David. We, we did this study back in the spring and summer. Okay, David was on his rooftop, he looked down, he saw Bathsheba, okay? The wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of his soldiers, and he saw her bathing, no fault of her own. She's in her courtyard doing her thing, right? She's got the curtain closed and he can see over it. He sees her, he desires her, then what's he do? He gives himself over to that desire. He entertains the thoughts of being with her. Then he takes the action of calling someone to go get her and bring her to him, and then he takes advantage of her. And as we know, there were deadly results because he had Uriah killed and all the rest. Now, while the world we live in today would also condemn David's actions primarily because of an abuse of power, the irony is at the very same time, the culture we live in advocates that the only way to be truly yourself is to express desires like his. So, so Jesus, in this passage, Jesus knows that sexuality can be at once the most delightful and the most dangerous of all our human capacities. So he ups the ante from the Jewish law. The Jewish law was primarily concerned with external behavior, committing adultery. Jesus ups the ante and he says, essentially, you are to be so pure in heart that not only do we not use sex in any way outside of the male-female covenant, But we, we also do not even entertain the expression of any sexual desires that would objectify another image bearer of God. Does that make sense? Now, I understand that the very sentiment of that from Jesus is bananas crazy to anyone who is modern, Western, and non-Christian because we are products of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Hence, we had this ethic for 1,960 years and it has slowly eroded over the last 60. I was not alive in the 60s, many of you were, but here's what I understand. The point of the sexual revolution of the 1960s was sexual self-expression. It was a rebellion against quote-unquote repressive, traditional, largely religious sexual ethics. And from the 1960s forward, the sexual revolution set out to normalize things like this. Sex and cohabitation outside the bounds of marriage, 
pornography, masturbation, uh, fantasy, alternative sexuality, for example, homosexuality, bisexuality, those kinds of things. And we fast forward today, um, uh, even in the late 80s, I, I found this this week, there was, a, there was a war conference in 1988 in DC made up of 175 leading uh, pro-gay activists who set out an agenda for how they were going to turn the tide in the United States, and it worked. Fast forward to today. When's the last time you watched a television show or a movie where it wasn't just matter of fact that a man and woman would sleep together within the first couple of dates or that they wouldn't cohabitate or that there's not a, a, a gay character in some place in the show or the movie, even kids' movies today. Um, we, we exhibit a, a hookup culture Right? We've got all kinds of apps on our phones where you just swipe if you want to exchange physical pleasure with someone else whom's, whose full name you don't even know. There are websites like OnlyFans where all kinds of people, but particularly young women, are essentially prostituting their bodies for money and, and crafting their own kind of pornography with their phone to put online for other people to oogle them and objectify them for $5.99 a month. Why on earth did we ever think that the way to liberation was a lower view of sexuality than Jesus has? And, and so, listen, I, there are some of you in the room right now, I can sense it. You are, you are pushing back. You're like, well, this is what I figured it was. Just a bunch of religious malarkey in here. Uh, we're liberated and free. Okay, let me just quote facts to you, statistics. Everyone's favorite game. Since the 1960s, at a point in time in the 60s, since the 1960s, happiness levels in the United States have declined rapidly. In that same span of time, since the 1960s, you know what else has doubled? Divorce rates. Depending on the study you look at, I saw one yesterday that said that 43%, anywhere from 25 to 43% of children are being raised in fatherless homes today. By the way, fatherlessness Fatherlessness is the number one contributor in five sociological societal ills. Crime, homelessness, unwed pregnancies, poverty, and future fatherlessness. Not to mention suicide rates, depression, and anxiety among fatherless children. Cohabitation. Studies by, by secular sociologists have shown that cohabitation increases your likelihood of divorce by 50%. So cohabitation is not practice for marriage, it's actually practice for divorce. Hookups lead to all kinds of shame and in many cases abuse. 80 plus percent of teenagers will be exposed to pornography. And the average age of a child's first exposure to pornography, both male and female, is 11 years old. All research, all research shows a correlation between pornography and sex trafficking, rape culture, and violence towards women. Sex abuse is now at its highest rate in the United States. One in four women will be the victims of some form of sexual abuse by the age of 18. I think it's safe to say the sexual revolution has been an epic failure. The New York Times had an article on this recently, and here's, here's one of the quotes that grabbed me. 
a generation of Americans have tried a new form of sexual morality and haven't just found it wanting, they have found it profoundly harmful. This is the world we live in. And I'm not, listen, I don't say any of these things. I I say them in righteous anger because I, I know how harmful it is to people, but I say it with all the compassion that I have in my heart for all the people who've been broken by this. For all those who've been victimized, for all those who right now are struggling through all kinds of shame and guilt because of things that they've done or that have been done to them. And we're just swimming in this putrid water of our culture. And that's all we ever, it's all we've known. Okay, are you hanging in? Okay, I got one more point. Um, It's gonna take me probably longer than the time I have left, but it is what it is. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter six. 1 Corinthians chapter six. Page 897 in your pew Bible if you wanna use that. So our culture's attempt to liberate us sexually has actually served to enslave and dehumanize us. In fact, um, I came across a book. I haven't read the book, but I I saw uh, an article about it. A woman named Louise Perry, who is a, as far as I can tell, is not a Christian. She's a secular feminist from Britain. She wrote a book, she used to volunteer, or, or I don't know if it was volunteer, she worked in a rape crisis center. She was a strong advocate of, of all the tenets of the sexual revolution until she realized the harm that it was doing particularly to women. And so she's now flipped and she's become a fierce advocate against the sexual revolution. She wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution because even secular sociologists are waking up to what the Bible has said for 2,000 years and longer. Isn't that interesting? So 1 Corinthians chapter six, I want you to see here the power for purity, the power for purity. Um, For many of us, before I get to the text, for many of us, I just wanna say um, our deepest regrets, our deepest shame and hurt and baggage is related to sexuality. So the question that we have to face is how do we respond to our hyper-sexualized world? And to give you some context before we read the passage, ancient Corinth was wild. (laughs) I mean, you think it's wild here? Read some history books, my friends, okay? Because um, pretty much anything went, okay? And Christians there were wrestling with similar issues that we're wrestling with today. And in fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see that there was some pretty jacked up stuff even within the church. One guy's having sex with his mother-in-law. I mean, it's wild, okay? And, um, and so Christians are wrestling and Paul has a challenge for the believers there. And his challenge is essentially this. If you have been made new by Jesus, then you are called to live in a new way. Now let's look at the text here. Verse uh, nine, we'll start in verse nine of first Corinthians chapter six. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. We'll stop there. If you've been made new by Jesus, live a new way. Paul is speaking specifically to the church. So he's not addressing the culture of Corinth at large. He's addressing the people in the congregation. And I'm doing the same. Okay. Sexual immorality, most of you many might know this, is really just a junk drawer term for anything, anything, yes, even that, outside the covenant bond of marriage between a man and a woman. Okay, that all, anything else is considered sexual immorality. But notice that it's mentioned alongside all kinds of other sins. Even this men who practice homosexuality, or a better translation is men who have sex with men, like that is mentioned alongside idolaters and adulterers and thieves and the greedy and drunkards and revilers because Paul is not putting sexual sin in a different category than any other sin. He's saying it's all sin. And the unrighteous are essentially the unrepentant, those who look at the commands of God and go, no, I'm gonna do my own thing, thank you very much. I'm gonna go my own way. I see what you're saying here, God, and I don't like it. I don't, you are, I know you are the creator of the entire earth, and yet I don't wanna give you authority over my puny little existence. I'm gonna do my own thing. That is the unrighteous or the unrepentant. He says, anyone in any kind of sin who is unrepentant will not inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. In other words, he's saying, that's not who you are. In other words, your desires are not your identity. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. Jesus has made all the difference for you. Your guilt and shame has been cleansed by Jesus. You have been set apart by Jesus. You have been declared right with God because of Jesus in your place. See, Jesus came fully God, fully man to this earth. He took on a human body and the scriptures say that he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. Even that way. But he was perfect in every place that you and I have failed. That's amazing. He was perfect in every place that you and I have failed. And he didn't, he wasn't perfect to shame you. He was perfect to save you. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, Jesus was pierced for us giving ourselves over to our desires. He died for us in our place, taking the weight of our sin upon himself. He, he took the judgment of God that is reserved for anyone who would look at God's authority and say, no thanks. Which is, by the way, every single one of us in this room. He took all of our shame, all of our guilt upon himself. He took all of our sin on himself and he, he absorbed the wrath of God towards sin in our place. He died and then he rose again to free us from enslavement to all kinds of sin, but in particular sexual sin. So, so hear me clearly. No matter what we have done, no matter how much we carry around with us, because of Christ's perfect work for us, we, you and I can find forgiveness and healing and true freedom. Freedom not to express every desire, but freedom from the consequences of expressing every desire. And, and then in verse 18, I'm gonna skip a little bit of 
stuff here in 1 Corinthians 6 that's valuable. You should read it on your own time. I just don't have time. Those of us who have received with the empty hands the finished work of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection for us are now seen as spotless and blameless and above reproach. All the sexual baggage that you, that you carried in, you lay it at the cross and you walk away pure. Isn't that good news? And then from that position of purity, he says this, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. In the original language, that means run. (laughs) Run, Forrest, run. Isn't it interesting? In Ephesians chapter six, Paul talks about the armor of God and he says, put on the armor of God so that you may stand against the devil. But here, he says, when it comes to sexual immorality, flee. Interesting. Stand against the devil, run from temptation. Why? Isn't it Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 6 that says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? There is something unique, and he even goes on to explain it here. Um, For every other sin a person commits outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is something unique about sexual temptation and sin in which when we give ourselves over to expressing it, it actually brings harm to us in our bodies, in our souls. There's a, there's a, 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 we're sinning against ourselves and others, but we are harming ourselves in a very unique way that doesn't happen with other sins. So he says, when you face sexual temptation and sin, flee, run from it. But you're not just running away from it, you're running to God. Look what he says here, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Run from immorality, run to God. Run to him. Run to the Spirit. Ask him for help. He dwells within you right now and he will strengthen and and, and empower you to resist those temptations. Now, maybe the most controversial thing I've talked about so far this morning is that last line. You are not your own. (laughs) You are not your own. You didn't create your body. So, so let's, I mean, our world says, my body, my choice, right? Jesus says, uh-uh. You didn't make your body, I did. Jesus did. You didn't redeem your body, Jesus did. By bearing in his body our sins on the tree. He took our sin in his body. His body was nailed to the tree. The nails went through his hands and his feet to redeem us for the sins we committed with our bodies. You won't resurrect your body. Christ will. And so therefore he says, glorify God in your body. You take your body, you take your sexuality, and you use it in ways that honor God's design and intent, which also means that we take our desires. Some of us need to honor our marital covenants. All of us do who are married. If you are married, you are called to honor your marital covenant. That's how you honor God with your body. If you are single, you honor God in your singleness by not giving yourself over to desires and justifying them in any way that you please in the moment. Okay, whatever your attraction is, you honor God by taking those desires and laying them before the Lord every single day. 
submitting yourself to his will and trusting in his promise that his grace is sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in your weakness. That is how we walk as a people of purity in a world full of seduction. Now, I do have a few questions I'm gonna put up on the screen for you. Um, you, can, you can take these with you if you'd like or whatever. Um, I don't, honestly, I don't care if you even look at the questions because I wanna give you a little bit of space just to process what you've heard and to come before the Lord um, yourself. But let me throw these up really, really quick and then we'll be done here. First question. Um, what has had the biggest influence on my understanding of sexuality? What's had the biggest influence? Um, one, one stat I did not share with you, um, one study I looked at said nearly all teenagers learned about sex from pornography. Okay, so what's, been the, what's had the biggest influence on your understanding of sex and sexuality? Has it been God, his word, has it been your parents, has it been the church, has it been something else in our world? Secondly, and I'm not asking these questions to shame anybody, it's just, let's, let's define reality here. Where have I seen the lies of our cultural moment on display around me? The lies that my sexual desire is my identity and the only way to be true to myself is to express that desire. Where, where do I see that in the cultural moment displayed around me? Third, how does knowing that Jesus came to forgive and heal my brokenness free me to pursue his ways regarding sexuality? To know that your shame and your guilt and that sense of ick that you walk around with because of things that you have given yourself to can be cleansed, can be made new, can be forgiven. You are a new creation in Christ. How does that reality empower you to want to walk in his ways. And then fourthly, um, are there any areas of my life today that I need to lay down before the Lord? So I just want to give you a little bit of space. We don't have a ton of time, but I want to give you a little bit of space and we'll have time certainly after the gathering. But right now, we'll just be still and silent before the Lord. I want you to pray. I want you to seek him. I want you to just open yourself up to him and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me today? How do you want to encourage me? How do you want to challenge me? How do you want to change me in regards to the way that I have viewed sex and sexuality? So uh, let me pray for you, um, and then we'll have a moment of silence. When, uh, when the moment of silence is, is over, I will get up, and I will come to this communion table. Now listen, communion is for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a remembrance of that, of that night on the, when Jesus was betrayed when he was with his disciples, and he said to them, um, as, you, as you remember me, as you eat this meal, you break this bread, and in breaking this bread, you are remembering my body, which was broken in order to make you whole. As you, as you take this wine or the juice, which we have on offer here, you are remembering my blood, which was spilled for you in order to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So there is a beauty in coming to these tables where we are remembering that, that Jesus' body and blood was sufficient to make us sexually pure, to make us, to cleanse us from all sin, to make us pure and spotless before him. And so we come with joy and thanksgiving. We come in repentance to these tables, turning from sin and turning to God. If you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to stay seated. But this is for those of us who know that we need our Savior. We know that we need 
um, fresh grace every single day and so we come to these tables. So when I get up to come to the table, the back rows will be dismissed to come to the tables and we'll go row by row. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for this time of, of uh, worship through the word. I know we've covered some difficult subject matter today, but I pray that you have, um, that it has been encouraging um, and clarifying to your people and I pray that you would be glorified now as we respond. Lord, we, we want to be a people of purity. We want to be a people who walk in holiness and joy. And so the only way that that can happen is by you cleansing us and strengthening us. That's what we need today. This isn't our might and our power and our pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to be more moral. This, this is broken people coming to a perfect savior and saying, I need you. We need you today, Lord. So we ask for your help and we ask with confidence in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit, we pray, amen.